that was a bit of an issue at the Commonwealth Games. I just really didn't feel like it was that hot and I, I, I guess, push a bit harder early on. And, and then we saw what happened to the uh, to Callum, um, the Scottish runner who um, had a reduced perception of how warm it was as well and it really showed us the end you know, result of something like that. It was very scary. Hello and welcome to the Long Munch, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. My name is Steph Gaskell. I'm an accredited sports dietitian, uh, researcher in sports nutrition and also do a bit of lecturing at Monash University in Melbourne, uh, who I'm also joined by my colleague who, who does something similar, Alan McCubbin. How are you, Alan? Yeah, I'm good. Thanks, Steph. Um, finally getting a little bit of sleep, which is always nice. So um, I mentioned in an earlier podcast, I've been working on um, uh, an online course for Sports Dietitians Australia. So essentially the course that people do when they sort of enter the profession uh, and moving that from what used to be a four-day face-to-face course to a completely online course because of the you know, various travel restrictions. So that's been a huge amount of work and particularly with you know kids at home last year with schools closed and then school, you know, they opened up for a few weeks but my youngest one was uh, sort of coming to the end of kinder so he stayed at home that whole time and then school holidays, they're finally back at school and mm-hmm. the course went live today. So Woo-hoo. it's all come together and I finally got my days back and I finally finished that piece of work. So I feel like I can actually get a decent night's sleep because I'm not kids all day and work all night. So yeah, it's it's a good feeling, I've got to say. And it's the reason why you and I, you're having a beer and, and I'm having a wine just to help celebrate with you. Yes, yes, exactly right. Exactly <laughs> right. And uh, yeah, we'll get to that a little bit later as well yeah. um yeah yeah awesome um and looking forward to looking forward to that and i know all the sports dietitians and the ones that will be becoming sports dietitians will thoroughly enjoy that course that you've put on um so here at the long munch we are basically taking a deep dive into the most common nutrition questions that runners, cyclists and triathletes ask. Um, might be that you're talking about it in a training session or it's at the coffee table after your your solid session. Um, but we're basically just wanting to cover off some of the, the stuff you talk about and want to know the answers to. Um, and we're aiming to break it down into um, something that's a bit easier to understand and um, wind through the confusing aspects of it. And so how we have our podcast set up is we'll have um, sort of like a part one A, which is going to be a guest expert. They might be a researcher um, or practitioner. And then um, part B will be either an athlete or a coach adding in their perspective of of that particular topic um, to help break it down and make it a bit more practical. Um, So we'd love to... um, get get advice um, on how we you know if if you enjoy the episodes or what you want to know more about um, so please hit us up on on social media on Instagram Facebook Twitter um, any, any of those um, and let us know what you're wanting to know more about um, if you're wanting us to spend a bit more time on particular questions in the interview or wanting us to keep in the rant take it out just just let us know. Um, we've had um, some, some interactions uh, online. We've had a, our first uh, Apple podcast rating from Sally. Ooh. So thank you very much, Sally, for the 
the rating and if anyone else wants to to put in a rating for the podcast whether it's on apple Podcasts or spotify or or any of the other podcasting platforms that have that functionality we'd be very happy to to see that uh, and and hear some feedback from you which is fantastic uh, and also a big thanks to to lionel who sent through a, a question for us to answer on the podcast so um thanks very much for that lionel we're, we're looking into that one and seeing uh, who the the best guest might be to to help us answer that question so we'll we'll have a think about that and, and hopefully put together an episode on on the topic that you requested um over the you know the next couple of months which is which is fantastic as well so yeah great to to see some some interaction happening on social media and if anyone else has a question that they um think we should we should cover in an episode feel free to hit us up, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Um, you know, we'd love to love to hear from you and, and hear those, have those interactions with you. And no silly, no question is a silly question as well. So don't be, don't be scared to, to ask. A absolutely. Question. Absolutely. And we're going to have, I think, an episode coming up in the not too distant future, uh, which is really bringing things back to basics in terms of how do I prepare for my first ultra mm-hmm. endurance event, whether that's a, um, you know, an Ironman or an ultra marathon or a, you know, 12 or 24 hour mountain bike race something like that um going right back to you know that that basics of you know if i've never done this before what the what are the things i need to consider and and how do i sort of plan it out so yeah you're right no no questions a silly question and uh yeah we're we're happy to happy to have a look at it so alan what episode number are we up to right now and um who is our guest Yes, so it's it's a little bit confusing. Uh, it's episode five B, but it's kind of four slash five B because we had two expert ones in a row with Professor Ollie J. So four A and and five A, because he's really an expert in in both of those questions. Mm. The first one was you know why do I sweat so much more than this person, uh, and then the second one was you know how do I cope you know training and racing in hot environments and i guess they're kind of interconnected and you know his background made him the perfect expert for both so we did both of those sort of back to back with ollie um and so today's guest um is sort of covering both of those topics really and, and her personal experience with it uh, and it's marathon runner jess stenson yeah yeah so very lucky to have um jess stenson also known um previously as as trend gove um, she's a dual Commonwealth Games bronze medalist, so 2014 Glasgow, 2018 Gold Coast, dual Olympic Games marathoner, so London and Rio. Um, and we're very lucky to have her join us on the podcast today. She's had has the highest ever placing by an Australian female in a world championship marathon placings, where she got ninth at 2017 IAAF World Champs in London. She's a country girl, um, so her hometown's in Narracourt, South Australia, physiotherapist by trade, um, and she's married to Dylan, who's also a runner. Um, And, yeah, one thing that I love um, that, I love about Dylan and Jess is actually Dylan's proposal was was pretty unique. Um, so he ended up having or getting this lamb called Neville to actually carry a diamond um, to Jess and that was actually later made into an engagement ring. The only issue was that Neville didn't follow the plan to, to the T um, and he actually nearly took off with the diamond. Um, so Jess gave birth to... Um, uh, her first child, Billy, um, in 2019 as well. So um, that's that's wonderful. 
In 2016, she started a business with Dylan and brother Jack designing and selling Rundies. So if anyone's looking for some nice sports underwear, go check out Rundies. Um, Jess is um, aiming to, to qualify for Olympics um, Tokyo for, for marathon. Obviously, that qualification had been has been put on hold with COVID, but it seems like there might be something... Um, uh, an event coming up in the pipeline for Jess to, to try and have a crack at that. So we wish her luck with that. Um, and um, yeah, Jess, um, in one of her toughest but most satisfying marathons to date, she won her second consecutive Com Games bronze medal at the 2018 Commonwealth Games and Gold Coast. And then um, she actually went on to play second at the Gold Coast Marathon only 10 weeks later in a time of 2.26.31. Um, so, um, and then she set a new personal best in um, Toronto um, in 2018, um, 2.25.59 seconds. So basically today, what we're talking to Jess about is two topics, as Alan mentioned, why do I sweat so much more than that person? And how do I best adapt to exercise in the heat? Jess has a really good experience with, with heat. She competed in the 2018 um, Gold Coast Marathon, as we mentioned, um, and that um, marathon was actually referred to as the Frying Pan Marathon. Um, so a lot of um, people will remember the, the dramatic moment in which Scottish runner Callum Hawkins was loaded into an ambulance after heat exhaustion. Um, so he only had, I think, like two, just over 2Ks to run, um, but yeah, he just, he just collapsed. Um, and, uh, yeah, was quite a frightening scene for all of us that saw that. Um, the marathon for females started quite early, 7.20. It was reported to be 23 degrees. However, um, you know, um, there, there was no clouds, there was hot sun, it was limited shade. So although 23 doesn't sound that bad, you've got to consider all aspects of the environment as you'll learn when you listen to Ollie's podcast. Um, but Jess did really well. She got a bronze medal. Um, she did, however, seem to suffer, obviously, from the heat. Um, so when she crossed the finish line, um, she was placed in a wheelchair at the finish. Um, she was handed a bottle of water and a wet towel behind her neck. Um, and Jess actually um, um, recalls anyone would have thought we had completed an ocean swim with the amount of salt and water flicking off our bodies. Two fingers were placed on my wrist for a heart rate check as waves of nausea slapped my guts. So that just shows you how, um, how tough those conditions were. Um, so, yeah, very lucky to have Jess, Alan. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think one of the interesting things about this interview was the um, the sense of self-improvement, I guess, for her as she's done you know, quite a few hot races now, sort of culminating in that, that Commonwealth Games and then the, um, the Gold Coast Marathon shortly after that. But I think, yeah, she talks about you know, the first hot race in 2013 at the World Championships in Moscow, then obviously the Rio Olympics in 2016, then the Commonwealth Games in 2018, and then, you know, the, the marathon 10 weeks after that. So, um, you know, plenty of opportunities to learn from each one. And I think it's a really good lesson for, for any athlete, really, is that, um, you know, there's only so much you can do, as she says in this interview, uh, to prepare for each event. But 
she really went in, um, has sort of taken it as that message of, of self-improvement and learning from one event and putting those learnings into the next one and you learn more and then you take that into the next one as that constant pursuit of perfection and you'll never get there because the definition of perfect you know it's it's almost unattainable but um it's that that constant drive for self-improvement and and getting better uh, i think that really impressed me about this interview mm. yeah yeah definitely um yeah very lucky so yeah let's get started and crack into it i think so let's let's bring on the interview Hey Jess, thanks for um, joining us on the Long Munch podcast today. Me, <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we just wanted to. We've had Ollie J on um, previously, where we were talking to him about um, uh, everything in terms of sort of sweat rate stuff, and then um, and then heat. Um, so I remember you suffering through Gold Coast um and thought it would be great to have a chat to you about yeah about what you did in in terms of that um but before we crack into that um can you tell us just i guess where you're at in terms of your your training and your plans for um tokyo um yeah, yeah what's kind of um where you're at in your training for all of that yeah, well, uh, as of probably about a week ago, it's, it's looking really likely now that there'll be a marathon available to Australians uh, in Sydney on April the 18th, um, which will be held in conjunction with the, the track and field nationals there. So um, Athletics Australia are looking to put on an event that um, will allow athletes to to put in, I guess, a qualifying um or attempt a qualifying standard for um, this year's Tokyo Olympics, but also next year's World Champs and Commonwealth Games. I think they've just acknowledged that it's pretty hard for athletes to get overseas uh, for marathons. And so, um, yeah, we don't know all of the details yet, but I think they're looking to maybe have 30 females and um, 30 males and um, they'll look to, yeah, obviously try and um, find a, a quicker course if they can. Um, it should be hopefully pretty flat and uh, that's what I'm preparing for at the moment. So it's really nice to have um, something that I can actually visualise for a long time now. I've been sort of vaguely training for this marathon that might happen. Yep. <laughs> and now um, it's a lot easier to motivate myself to, to get out the door actually knowing what I'm working towards. Yep. Yeah, yep. Um, Cool. And um, what's the sort of qualification system as well, like um, in terms of, um, yeah, can you explain that to the listeners? What do you need to kind of hit to, to make it? <clears throat> yeah, so uh, I think the female official sort of qualifying standard is 229.30, but every country can only take three females and three males. So um, it ends up sort of in our situation in Australia, um, there are already four girls who have run faster than that time. So it's more a case of trying to be in that top three. Um, and yeah, it's the depth of Australian distance running at the moment's incredible. And it's a really good sign um, to qualify for the London Olympics in 2012. I just had to basically get under two hours and 32 minutes and um, I would have made the team. But this year, I think to make the team, anyone will have to run basically faster than 2.26.20. <laughs> yeah, 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 it's tight, isn't it? So um, at the moment, 
it's is it at the moment kind of Shanae, Ellie, and Lisa in the in the sort of top three at the moment? Yeah, yeah. So they've yeah. all run um, phenomenal times and really uh, set a high standard for everyone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's good. That's cool. Um, and I know recently you've um, become a mum. Uh, you and Dylan have uh, lovely Billy. Um, <laughs> so how's that kind of, um, uh, I guess, challenged you with your with your training? Um, yeah. Yeah, in a number of ways. I mean, um, at the moment, logistically, that's one of the, the big challenges, just trying to um, find ways to, to get out and achieve the training and have Billy looked after. So, um, yeah, we've got a pretty um, finely tuned schedule at the moment, which we need to adapt. Um, for example, if Billy were to get a cold and, and couldn't go to creche or childcare on one day, we need to then look at other <laughs> options. But um, basically, yeah, every um, day I've got um, an option for him to be looked after while I'm training. And um, prior to that, I guess one of the biggest challenges back at the end of 2019 after he was born and, and then the early months of 2020, um, one of the big challenges was just uh, my body and, and building up that strength that, um, I mean, my legs were strong because I'd been carrying around my weight plus baby weight and everything else for <laughs> nine months. But um, my core was, yeah, had had been significantly uh, affected by the, the C-section that I had and um, just, yeah, everything else that comes with pregnancy. So um, I was working with the, the professionals there and, and getting as much um, knowledge as I could through you know, physio professional development courses and, and podcasts and whatnot to work out how I could safely return to exercise, knowing that I was at a high risk of, you know, getting bone stress fractures and whatnot. Yep, yep. And that seemed to go pretty well. Yeah, fortunately, uh, touch wood, I haven't had a bone injury. Um, I really wanted to continue breastfeeding for as long as I could, and I knew that that would mean that I was giving a lot of vital nutrients, um, you know, away in, in breast milk and whatnot. Um, so I was able to, to do that for the 13 months and um, since weaning Billy off breastfeeding, I have noticed a, a big difference in my appetite and my thirst. Um, I, yeah, I knew that I was consuming a lot of calories to try and get the training and the breastfeeding. Um, yeah done effectively but I it was quite amazing you know two weeks after stopping breastfeeding how my appetite did sort of dissipate a bit yeah 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 that's interesting yeah yeah um so in our last episode Jess we talked with Ollie Jay who's a thermal physiologist and we talked about your various different factors that impact on sweat rate whether it's you know within the same person you know changes from day to day or the difference between one person and someone else um have you gone through that sort of experience of trying to work out your sweat rates and um, have some planning around that for races in the past? I mean, obviously you've had a few sort of hot races, probably the Commonwealth Games in 2018, probably, you know, chief amongst those. Yeah, I will just say I listened to Professor Ollie Jay and I thought, gee, it would have been good to listen to this a, a few years ago. I'm really glad that I've listened to that and I've got that knowledge going forward because he explained it in a in a really good way. Like there were the technical aspects, but he also did a good job of making it understandable for anyone and there were some really um, 
interesting points he made about um yeah the, the heat that you produce and your body needs to find a way to to get rid of that i just could visualize um sort of the process that occurs and it'll mean i'll be a lot more invested mm. in the process of sort of measuring my sweat rate and and whatnot in future but my first probably really um hot marathon i did was in moscow in 2013 and moscow sounds like a cold place but it was it was very hot um it was in august i think it was 1 p.m our race was and so it wasn't just um the heat it was that sunlight um directly on us which um professor ollie j actually spoke about that um and so i was preparing for that in our winter and i remember at that point it was as simple as i was just trying to layer up a bit more for my runs and didn't do anything too um, specific in the way of actually measuring my um, sweat sweat rate or anything and then uh, my next hot one would have been rio in 2016 and that's when we started to get more specific so i was doing um some of my i was doing some treadmill runs and Actually, no, it was more cycling actually in a heat chamber um, to um, get the acclimation. And um, I was doing pre and post weights to sort of see how much, um, you know, fluid I was losing and went into that race with a, a really specific hydration sort of strategy to um, try and, you know, handle the heat and then obviously 2018 in in the gold coast for the commonwealth games was was particularly hot and i got even more specific with my i guess strategy to um to get the acclimation there with um my exercise physiologist at sassy eileen robertson she was fantastic and sam Tebeck. um we were looking at um spa um uh what do you call it yeah it was basically um submersion where you, you go up to your shoulders and i think from memory i would weigh myself and then i'd do my training session weigh myself again get in the spa i'm going to say it was up to 15 minutes um but there were points where i could get my arms out if i needed to <laughs> um and then i'd weigh myself again and um so obviously i was checking my sweat rate but it was more the actual process of getting my body um yeah. used to, to heat so um that was quite fascinating um mm. and also just realizing how impractical it can be to try and um, measure your sweat rate when you get your clothes obviously get drenched as well you lose your sweat into your clothes so you have to sort of take your clothes off and you know it's a bit awkward when you're in these public places trying to mm. <laughs> measure <laughs> yeah yeah when we, when we do it in the lab we have a like a curtained off area and people literally <laughs> have to strip down to nothing to weigh themselves before and afterwards for that for yeah. that reason as you said obviously your clothing will will uh, gain a bit of fluid and it's interesting actually i don't know if you've noticed this Steph. like um i weigh mine participants in studies like before they do that and then like where they've got all their gear on and then take the weight when they've got no gear on. I'm just interested always to see what, how much weight all their clothes and stuff is mm. and mm -hmm. whether it changes much, you know, whether the difference before exercise is less than the difference after exercise. And I've found that, I guess, with the most run, you know, modern sort of exercise gear, whether it's um, cycling gear or, or running gear, doesn't actually seem to, like the, the weight difference 
um, clothed to unclothed before and after is actually not as big as I would have thought. But I guess, you know, fabrics are pretty good these days at not absorbing too much. And obviously with body weight scales, I mean, you're only going to get it accurate to 100 grams because that's the, the resolution of the scale anyway. So I'm finding that, yeah, it's not too bad. I don't know what you found. I think females um, crop tops so where you can really um, absorb yep. a lot of the sweat. I'd say it would be quite yeah. different males in those thin singlets yeah. that they wear and I don't know. Yeah, I haven't noticed it. I mean, I have to go back and check, but I don't think I've noticed a big difference either between males and females, to be honest. And a lot of the guys, like it's in a heated tent where we do most of our research, like they'll often um, do the exercise with no top at all. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, I guess a lot of it will be in the socks, probably the main yeah. place. But, yeah, it hasn't been, hasn't been as much as I would have naturally expected, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. um, so, so coming back to those sort of experiences, you had those, um, those races, you know, Moscow, Rio, and then the Gold Coast with the Com Games. Um, going into those races, I mean, you talked a bit about the acclimation process, but did you go into those races with a specific plan in terms of, like, this is what I intend to drink um, during those events? It's interesting. It wasn't actually until the, the 2018 Gold Coast Marathon in July. So there, were the, there was the Commonwealth Games in April, and then I actually um, also um, raced in the Gold Coast then a few months later and I took my learnings from the Commonwealth Games which was basically I didn't think I'd had enough and maybe not enough electrolytes and then had a really specific strategy for the Gold Coast Marathon in July. So prior to that I'd really focused on acclimation and, and then probably drinking to need perhaps more so than really aiming for specific, um, you know, amounts and you know, my, um, who I, the sports dietitian I work with at Sassy had really encouraged me, I think, to try and take on more and practice more. But I found each marathon prep, there's only sort of so much I can work on at one time. So at times it's been, you know, the carbohydrate loading strategy and, you know, we've tweaked that over the years. And so it's taken, you know, quite a number of marathons to, to be able to address each each aspect. So I'd say that July marathon, I, I had my little sauce bottles and I think I was aiming for 120 to 150 meals at um, some of the 5K checkpoints. And, and I knew from my, you know, running um, training that, um, so many sips would sort of equate to a certain amount but I also tried to have little bottles so I could really pretty much finish the bottle and I knew that I'd got the amount I needed because that can also be hard too is having an amount you're aiming for but you don't want to fully empty your bottle because it's really hard to squeeze out the last um, bits when yep. you're running. Um, so the running to thirst, I guess, in the previous ones, I remember Moscow in 2013, we had our normal 5K checkpoints, but then they also had water stations in between those and they were just screw top bottles. And I remember grabbing water bottles at every opportunity I could, unscrewing the bottle and drinking. Like I was just so thirsty in that run and that's the one where we had the direct sunlight on us. Mm. And... Um, I felt really unwell afterwards, but I think what sort of got me through to the finish was that um, just regular drinking. And then in Rio, oh, again, every hot marathon I've done, I, there have been points where you just don't think you're going to finish, you know, it, get, it gets really tough. But I, I think 
the hydration wasn't too much of an issue in Rio. I think I, I was pretty happy with that side of things. Um, I just wasn't as fit because I'd had an injury in the lead up. Um, and then Gold Coast in 2018, I actually, I felt great early on and I probably didn't drink as much as I should have early on because my um, perception of, of temperature wasn't concerning me. I, I thought, oh, it's actually not as, as warm as they were saying. And I got to sort of 25, 32 kilometres and it really started to catch up with me then. I think that's when sort of the clouds opened up, a bit of direct sunlight came down and um, yeah, I again felt really, really unwell after finishing that race. And that's kind of been a theme with me in hot races. I get really pale and really nauseous um, at the end rather than your typical seeing someone sort of turn red when they're hot. <laughs> I um, just get quite sick. So I think um, took those learnings into the next Gold Coast race and, and managed the heat a bit, a lot better um, come yeah. July. Yeah, cool. And have you ever weighed yourself just out of interest like before and after a marathon and tried to work out what the sweat rate during the actual event was? It's obviously a bit difficult sort of time-wise and with everything going on around a race. Um, I haven't, no. I've only done it before and after a long run, which is quite different because you don't have that same intensity. Um, yeah. But yeah, it can be a kilo and a half or, or so um, that's lost um, on a long run of, you know, 90 minutes plus. Yeah. But when I say drink to thirst, um, I always make sure I, I drink, but you know, how I guess much I take on. If I'm feeling thirsty, I'll tend to, to try and get more in. Mm. Uh, but, yeah, that's it's something that my coach is really encouraging me to do more in my preparations is that practice the, the drinking because it's one thing to want to get the drink in but to actually be able to use the water bottles in a good way to, to get what you're wanting in. I've, I've often found that quite hard as well the different pop tops and <laughs> well I was going to say that because we were talking to um we've interviewed uh Julian Spence um yeah. and we talked a little bit about his experience with Doha and I did some work with him um for that um and just in terms of like you know the speed and pace that you guys are going like so yeah just kind of you know get get the drink and then actually get it down while maintaining your pace yeah um can be quite challenging Mm. And I think too, you can have your, your water bottles that work quite well for you in training and then you, you go overseas and, you know, mm. the race will often supply a particular bottle. But if it's a really um, um, sort of firm bottle, mm. you can't squeak it or it's got a firm pop top, it's, um, it can be quite a shock. So I always try to take some of my own over, but you of course need eight of them. And sometimes trying to find eight of your favourite little bottle can be hard. So. <laughs> and there's always yeah. the issue if you miss one. Like I, I remember there's a great um, clip on YouTube about Kipchoge, I think in mm. Berlin. Yeah, he missed and, one, um, yeah. Like they have the volunteers assigned obviously to the, the elite guys to hand out the bottles and he's got this guy, Klaus, this German guy, volunteer there, and he's got the double fist pump every time he successfully gives him one. And then they show another aid station later on where there was no Klaus and he goes for the bottle off the table and just everywhere. No, no bottle. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> and then they had one of the other volunteers um, for, um, I think it was Debaba, and they were trying to hand her a bottle and she was in a pack with a whole bunch of guys that she'd caught up with. And um, the, the volunteer couldn't see her out at this 
this pack of runners. And so she was almost past her by the time she realised it's trying to stick out this bottle. The volunteer almost tripped over an esky. The barber almost dropped the bottle. It was just chaos. So, yeah, I mean, there's all that sort of logistical stuff you've got to plan for. And then, as you said, Steph, it's like when you're, when you're huffing and puffing at that kind of pace, just even getting it down without choking on it is, can be a bit of a challenge as well. Yeah, and then how you mentally handle that if you do miss one, um, trying not mm. to panic and just mm. that you'll get one Focus. at the station. Because I, I missed one in the Glasgow Commonwealth Games, I remember it. Um, I think it must have been 15 kilometres, which is one I, I really wanted to get. And I just, yeah, it was distracted. And next minute the Australian um, table's gone by because we're, of course, always at the front being A. Mm. And, uh, yeah, trying to yeah. to just <laughs> take a breather and say I'll be okay when, when you really wanted that bottle. <laughs> it can be hard. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Okay. Um, now, obviously, you, you do a fair bit of running and training with, with training partners and, and other people over there in Adelaide and, you know, when you go away and travelling with teams and so on. One of the things that we talked about with Ollie is the fact that sweat rates vary so much from person to person and, that you know, there, there's a physiological reason for that. But, you know, it's, it's pretty obvious to a lot of people. Do you notice that amongst the people that you train with that, you know, oh, I sweat a lot more than that person or, or they seem to sweat a lot more than I do? You do, and you sort of have your people who are the notorious sweaters. Um, over the years I've had different training partners and, and when you're um, running, you know, within a metre or two of someone who's a big sweater, you, you know about it. <laughs> it's flipping you. And <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, one of my um, friends, he um, he's since moved to the Sunshine Coast, but he was always uh, a sweater. <laughs> we used to have jokes about it. <laughs> you end up sort of wearing half of his sweat. <laughs> yeah. And do those guys, do you, do you find, like, do you hear from them stories that they struggle even more to, to drink enough? Um, yeah, I guess um, he was more of a triathlete, so he'd be on the bike where I think it's a bit easier to, um, to get it in. Um, yeah. But, yeah, I, I haven't heard of too many runners saying they struggle to, to get enough um, water in it's more probably the gels that people talk about struggling with and the just stomach yes <laughs> the, the flavor and yes we've got another episode planned for that <laughs> yep yeah all right um and so when once you've sort of got some idea of, of your, your sweat rate i mean i guess as, as you said it varies depending on whether you're training or so on has there been times where you've sort of done that weighing before and after, whether it's a, a training session or whatever, and sort of gone, oh, I need to really change my approach to what I'm doing here? Has that been sort of valuable feedback for you at, at stages along the way? It has. What's probably had the most profound impact on me is leading into races when we've done the, um, the, the urine samples. So the doctors in, I think, probably, yeah, Moscow, Rio, come games in um, the Gold Coast, anywhere where it's sort of been um, hot, they have asked us, I think, in the five days leading up to basically drop off a sample in the morning to to have it measured. And I often have found that I am more dehydrated than I, I thought I was and really make it an extra effort to drink more and eventually get it to a level that they're happy with before the race. But 
um, that to me is being quite confronting when you <laughs> see the number mm. and think, oh, wow. Um, yeah, when I've done the, the weigh-ins and whatnot, um, it's generally been about what I was expecting. Um, yep. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess over time you kind of get a pretty good feel of, of what's normal for you. Yeah, and I guess I always do expect that I'll, I'll lose a lot sort of during the run if I haven't had the opportunities to sort of replace it in that run, which in some of your training runs you, you don't have many opportunities, whereas I think when you've been going about your day and then you wake up in the morning and sort of see how dehydrated you are, you think, oh, I, yeah, I could improve on that. <laughs> mm, yeah, actually it was just when you were saying that made me think of this um like you mentioned there obviously we're training particularly for running because it's it's harder to carry fluid with you mm. um you don't get as much chance often to to drink does do you find that that ever becomes a problem come race day or do you do some like in the lead up to big events do you do a bit more specific practice going yeah i'm going to have make sure i've got more water available to me so i get used to having that volume that i'm that i might want to have in the race yeah so now that i've got a, a marathon that i'm targeting um my sunday long run which is quite a, a marathon specific um run um, my coach or or live my um, sports dietitian um, would tend to come out on the bike with a backpack with bottles and um, whatnot. So we try to mimic, you know, every 20 minutes or every sort of 5K, I'll um, have a drink. So yeah, now we're into sort of marathon mode. I'm, I'm doing more of that. But to be honest, um, so far, we haven't actually had many hot days. Um, the, the weekend just gone was was the hottest one we've had. But until then, yeah, it's been quite an interesting summer, fairly mild. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's been the same here. Mm. Cool. All right, so now we're going to switch it a bit around from, from talking about sweat um, to a bit more in terms of the heat yep. um, and I guess dig a bit deeper in terms of what you what you did to prepare for some of those um, hot races. So, yep. if yeah, if you think about, um, let's say, Gold Coast Com, Com Games, um, how how did you kind of prepare for the heat um, leading up to to that event? What were um, I guess some of the different strategies that you did, mm -hmm. um, and perhaps if we break it up in terms of what you did from the training physiological side, and then we'll talk about nutrition um, a bit later. So yeah. Um, yeah, just kind of from the training bit um, leading up to that event. Well, I guess, and um, Professor Ollie Jay spoke about this a bit too, you know, if you've got a good running economy, um, you're going to probably generate less heat that needs to then be. So I guess getting as fit as possible was the um, prerogative. And I had a um, training camp in um, January of that year. So the race was in April in Karakalinga and obviously it's the heat Australian summer and just trying to get the work done and, and you know, in a hot environment already. And then when I came back to Adelaide, um, I was, that's when I was doing sort of the spa um, sessions. And I think it was maybe a three week period and I might've been doing that twice a week from memory. Mm -hmm. It was a specific protocol and it's a bit hazy yep. now, but it was all sort of based on what the exercise physiologists, um, you know, found to be most beneficial in the evidence and whatnot. And I, it could have been once, but I've got a feeling it was maybe two 
two spa sessions and there was a sort of a number of weeks that I was doing it across and then after that I was doing one treadmill run a week in a hot and humid environment in the heat chamber. Do you know? Yeah, cool. So with that, Jess, do you know in the, so with the spa stuff, obviously they had the water at a certain temp. Do you know what the temp was or uh, roughly? Or it doesn't matter if you don't. Um, would like high 30s be about right, do you think? Could 40? Could be, yeah. And then they were monitoring, were they tracking your temp? Were you, did you swallow a capsule or... Um, I'm guessing you probably didn't wear a rectal thermometer, which is what we get our it. participants I to do. Remember that. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to remember if I did end up having the tablet or not. We spoke about it. Have you done that in any of your um, training? Have they? Um, no, but no, I know no. that um, some of the athletes did in the Commonwealth Games at the Gold Coast, and the results are yeah fascinating. Yeah. No, I, I haven't. Um, yeah, explore that area yet. <laughs> yeah. And the um, the heat chamber, do you know what temp that was, like when you were going in there or just kind of 30 or more or something? The It was very much trying to mimic what the Gold Coast conditions would be. Uh, the condition. Humidity yep, might have cool. been 80-something and then yep. it might have been 30, you know, one perhaps. Yep. But yeah. Yep. Um, and then you sort of ran at what race pace there or what was your when no, you were on the treadmill? I wasn't actually at race pace. I was doing an yep. hour just at a, a jog pace in the in the chamber. I think that's more just a, a safety thing. I'm, I'm not very used to running on treadmills and I, I couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, cool. Um, any um so i guess that's sort of some of the the training parts um what about um the nutrition side of things so i know you work with um olivia warns mm -hmm. um who's a good friend um of mine as well yeah. um so yeah what did you and Liv, i guess work on from from the nutrition side of things yeah so as i mentioned over the years i've sort of refined my immediate um carb loading or pre-race strategy which goes for about two days and we've we've gone um to more of a low sort of fiber or low res approach um because i was finding when i take on all of the carbs and all of the fluids i was just feeling a bit um like i was retaining that fluid and was lining up on race day feeling a bit heavy lethargic sort of and i, I really like this approach um specifically for the heat, I guess it was about trying to get those um, fluids in and maybe some of my carb sources switched to more liquid carbs. Um, so having your, you know, your Gatorade or your sports drink type options. And, and then obviously um, throughout the marathon, um, having, you know, carbs within the, the, fluids I was taking as well as as well as my gels um, and we've experimented with different things over the years so um, some different electrolyte um, mixes and we're constantly sort of tweaking that and trying to work out yeah, which option is best and um, yeah trying some some things at the moment I guess it's an area where the science is constantly just um, yeah there's there's new information and new products coming out so even um, some of the um starchy sort of 
drinks you can have the night before now mm. um there's mm -hmm. prepped here in south australia um has been around for a little while now and, and trialing some of those things to try and uh yeah be see if it helps as possible going into the race mm -hmm. yep so did you do any um what about pre-calling um for for the heat for those events did you do some pre-calling strategies yeah so for the Actually, I think for Moscow we did as well and for Commonwealth Games certainly and on the Gold Coast I wore the ice vest um, for a bit and, yeah, that felt nice. I mean, I naturally don't have a very strong sense of heat, if that makes sense. Like on, mm -hmm. I seem to be able to handle hot weather and hot climates um, quite well. I really don't like the, the cold. So in some ways it's... Um, it can be uh, to my detriment that I don't really have a strong sense of heat because I go out and start a race or a marathon thinking, oh, this is okay. But, you know, deep down my body is, um, <laughs> it's still losing fluid and it needs to be replaced. So, yeah. Mm. And our second um, second podcast with Ollie, he talks a bit about that and the, um, the difference, I guess, between your actual body temperature and your perception of mm -hmm. temperature. Um, can be be a bit different and and also that some of these strategies that sometimes make us feel cool don't mm. necessarily cool us down that much mm. um so we feel a lot cooler even though we may not really be um, so yeah. yeah it's it's interesting to look at how you sort of manipulate those two things to to try and get obviously what's what's optimal for sure and i've heard about um menthol or something mm. as well because it has that cooling effect i haven't tried anything like that but it makes sense <laughs> yeah yeah, and, and you know, the, it can be a, a useful strategy in some senses because if you feel cooler, and, and Ollie talked about this, you tend to perform better in the heat. Mm. But particularly for more prolonged exercise, the, the danger is that you feel cooler so you push harder, you push that body temperature up. And particularly, I guess, for the, the ultra-endurance type stuff, the risk is that you then overdo it and the body temperature goes up too much and then you run into, you know, potential health consequences of that as well um, because you sort of went too hard too early thinking that that all was fine when it may not necessarily have been yeah and yeah. I think to some extent that that was a bit of an issue at the Commonwealth Games I just really didn't feel like it was that hot and I I, mm. I guess push a bit harder early on and, and then we saw what happened to the uh, well, to Callum um, the Scottish runner who um, mm had a reduced perception of how warm it was as well and it really showed us the end you know result of something like that it was very scary yeah yeah be interesting to know what your body temp gets up to hmm. yeah yeah maybe hmm. swallow a little <laughs> swallow a little capsule <laughs> yep poop it out later <laughs> uh. Did, did you do anything with clothing? Like did any of that sort of detail come up in terms of, um, you know, like obviously our clothing can impact our, um, our body temperature, our thermoregulation. Um, so was there any strategy or is there any strategy in, um, in what you choose to wear for these events? Not really because you're given your uniform. But yeah. yeah. I guess for females we've got, the option of the crop top or not. Sometimes the inbuilt crop top's sufficient. Sometimes you need to sort of put your own on underneath, but that obviously really warms your chest more. Yeah. Um, socks, I guess, um, 
they generally will supply the socks that you should wear as as well um for me i often think about sunscreen i know yep. it's really important to wear sunscreen um particularly you know as, as it gets later in the day sometimes our races are really early in the morning but the sunscreen feeling on your skin and it feels like it kind of traps your heat traps the heat in and you know that you're going to get it running mm. in your eyes so that's something i i sort of think yeah, about um other than that yeah you really are. we should ask golly actually about that where the sunscreen affects like the evaporation yeah, of sweat that's a good question never even thought of that yeah yeah, yeah. he's talked about hair body hair but uh not not sunscreen, mm. <laughs> sunscreen. Um, you know choosing eyewear i think that can really affect your perception mm. of heat if if it's mm -hmm. darker you know what you're visually seeing um some athletes i know um one of the american men was replacing his cap throughout the race in rio at the olympics um yep. was getting people to basically cool the cap and he'd put a fresh mm. cap on. Um, which was pretty smart strategy, I guess. Uh, yep. Yeah. You don't really, like. It's about you, you don't wear a hat usually, do you? Pardon? Uh, you don't wear a hat, do you, in your races? No, I don't wear a hat. Um, but I was just going to say another big consideration on a hot day is um, anti-friction balm of some sort because you can get really <laughs> chafing that can. Um, can be a big distraction <laughs> on mm. race day and yeah. and whatnot. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Very true. Um, so I think you kind of alluded to it a little bit before, Jess, um, at the the Com Games on the Gold Coast that um, you know you started off feeling pretty good and then maybe went a bit too hard in those earlier stages mm -hmm. and and got quite hot later on. What what did happen sort of in that that later part of the race for you? What was that experience like? Uh, so I'd say that's the hardest um, race I've ever finished that Commonwealth Games um, Gold Coast Marathon. I remember from 37 kilometres really feel, feeling like I was in survival mode and uh, I was really grateful for the Australian crowd there and so many people cheering because I feel like it was really my um, head that got me to the, <laughs> to the finish line that day. I just felt suddenly just completely empty and um there was a bit of shade on one side of the road you know in the final kilometer uh, where the crowd was and i was trying to sort of stay as close to that side and the crowd as i possibly could but um yeah i i just really did wonder if i was going to get to the finish line i didn't i knew that i could be headstrong but i thought my body might take over and you know my head might not be enough um, to get me there on the day and just felt really nauseated and unwell uh, when I crossed the line. And I looked at my heart rate graph um, after the race and it sort of just really plateaued, almost dropped off. It was quite strange. It was sort of just going up as you'd expect. And then it just didn't about the time when I talked about feeling really average 37 kilometres onwards, it, it sort of just did this funny taper off thing. <laughs> I don't know if it was my wrist heart rate playing up or if that really did happen, but yeah. Mm. But your pace had stayed more or less the same? Oh. Well, it started to taper off a bit as well. Yeah, look, I think that would have tapered off certainly in those final few kilometres. I don't think it was progressively mm. getting um, slower. I think the final three or four kilometres were just slower generally, but we did have a, a fair old uphill 
um, coming into the finish as well, which is yeah. <laughs> always fun. <laughs> just, just, to, uh, just to sting the legs up a little bit more <laughs> yeah. if you haven't already. Um, all right, and so what happened then after you crossed the finish line? Obviously, you're pretty feeling pretty average at this stage. What, what happened then? Yeah, so um, there were some volunteers who sort of came because I couldn't, I was trying to walk in a straight line to <laughs> to get to the, um, you know, the, the volunteers and the water and the, the cold towers and I couldn't walk straight. I was all over the place and um, so they helped me and I sat down and just, yeah, had the cold towers and was sipping on water, feeling unwell. Um probably for 15 or so minutes and then we got up and watched the men's race but yeah just had to keep on sipping away at the water I guess I didn't actually get drug tested that day but I did after the um the, the Gold Coast Marathon in July and I remember yeah sitting around for hours um drinking to to actually be able to produce a sample so that's always um tricky after a hot marathon too yeah and yeah, then you're absolutely. not wanting it to be too dilute, so they're like, "Oh, you've had two bottles, maybe stop there." And <laughs> then you're hanging around and waiting. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. and and from that experience, you mentioned that obviously you then had to come back and race at the Gold Coast again only a few months later. Mm-hmm. What were the sort of the key learnings you took away from the Com Games that you were then able to use into the the Gold Coast Marathon? Well, one thing is I was basically just having my water and gels. Um, I didn't focus too much on electrolytes um, in in my water bottles um, in the first Gold Coast experience. So second time around, we really, um, I was using a formulation. Um, it was actually Vitago for that marathon, which was a carbohydrate blend that we added some electrolytes into and it was quite concentrated and I'd been really practicing that in training so that I knew I could tolerate it and um, Liv gave me very specific amounts to aim for at each um, five kilometre checkpoint and obviously we would have adjusted that a bit depending on whether it was actually going to be hot on the day or not and it it did end up being it ended up being quite humid for that um, marathon in July and I was able to tick off all of the um, the 5K checkpoints and what, what I was aiming for. And I, I guess, gained a lot of confidence throughout the run knowing um, every time I, you know, got a bottle down, I was like, yep, that's um, big tick. And I, I knew that I'd done everything I, I needed to. And so um, I guess that's just as um, important as the physical, isn't it? Mentally knowing that you, you're doing everything um, Mm. you should be doing in yeah so I actually my only marathon I've run since that one was in Toronto and it was one degree so uh, I took a bit of a different approach in that (laughs) that one yeah just a little yeah Uh, I remember at one Mm. stage looking at possibly moving to Toronto for work and sort of looked up the temperatures during the during the summer, it was like 28 degrees. I'm like, oh, that's all right. And then in winter, it's like minus 25. I'm like, mm, no, I think I'll, I'll stay here. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, cool. And so that final sort of three Ks of, of that second race on the Gold Coast, was that a, a bit more pleasant experience? It was, yeah. My pace didn't drop off as much. It was still really tough, but uh, I was able to, you know, hold my hold my pace and my form much better. I don't I don't think it ever mentally gets a lot easier, but it is nice when you can feel yourself still, you know, 
ticking over at, at a reasonable pace. So, uh, yeah, yeah, the, I I would say that was a, a real success that um, hydrating and fueling strategy in the, the second Gold Coast run. All right, Steph, I think we're ready for the bonus round. Do you want to do the honours or do you want me to do it? Or Yeah, what do you yep. um, yeah I'll crack into it. Um, so this is a fun part, Jess. We get to know a little bit more about you. Um, <laughs> so tell us if you could do anything besides what you're doing now. Um, so let's say besides your running and being physio, um, yeah. what would you do? What else sparks your interest? Yeah, well, yeah, good question. I guess one thing that comes to mind, um, I've prepared a couple of times for races in St. Moritz and I just, I love that part of the world. It's just the clean air, the mountains, the the trails, the water and reflections and just the colour. It's it's phenomenal and um, an athlete um, over there who I know, she just... Uh, she does sort of running adventures. She takes people on these adventures cool. through, you know, the trails and the mountains and, and that would be pretty cool, you know, just being able to show people your little uh, pocket of the world um, through these running tours and I think you'd meet some really fascinating people um, along the way and it's just a, you know, I, I love running for so many reasons but one of the things is, it just exposes you to parts of the world that you don't necessarily see or appreciate otherwise. So, yep. yeah, probably not right now with um, the COVID restrictions, but yeah. <laughs> down the track, I down think running tours in a place like that would be really cool. <laughs> yeah. yeah, definitely. Um, and what's one thing on your bucket list that you haven't yet done that you want to do? Thinking the other day, I haven't actually seen Airs Rock yet. Oh. I really need to, you know, yeah. go and see that um, the country. Yep. Uh, there's a lot of local travel that I'd like to do, but I just feel like that's a, a big one that I, I need to do sometime soon. <laughs> I'm the yeah, same. same. Have you been there, nah. Steph, Central Australia? Let's all go together. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got a, a client at the moment who's training for a, a race up there. It's a 230k trail race. Oh. Yeah, right. single stage. All right, we'll go support. Sixty hour cut off. <laughs> <laughs> We're not going to run it. No, <laughs> nah, not nah, my cup of tea. Nah. Um, uh, Jess, what's the key message um, that you perhaps want to get across to some like runners? Let's say female runners, um, mm -hmm. as an example, um, that you think they can benefit from. What's what's something I guess you see perhaps that um, people are struggling through or could do better? Hmm. Yeah, that is a really good question. I think one thing I've really learned is, um, you know, you, you kind of you set your goal and you map out a pretty direct route to that but so often things happen that cause you to deviate off that direct route and you can really fight that and just keep trying to pull yourself back onto that path but I think just acknowledging that there will be um you know different um bumps on the road journeys, yeah um along the way that you know sometimes end up being for the best and you've just got to really look for the 
the things that you can gain from those deviations and the opportunities and and try and um you know make something positive of it but also i guess something really important that um applies to females and males is is the nutrition side of thing and realizing that you know we're asking a lot of our bodies and i always think of you know the fuel as being such an important part of not only um being able to get the intensity or the, the work done, but also looking after your immune system and protecting you from, you know, illnesses and and that's good for overall health, but also enabling you to be consistent with your training. And I just, I yeah, can't speak highly enough of the, the things I've learned from like Liv, but also yourself, you know, with the, the FODMAP um, talk I listened to quite a while back now, <laughs> that would have been many years ago. You know, I was having trouble with um, crampy guts and, um, you know, just actually applying some of the, the strategies that you talked about has really helped me. And I think when you've got, um, yeah, good food going in and it's, it's sitting well, it's digesting well, it just makes everything, your mental, physical well-being so much better. So um, to any people trying to sort of cut back thinking that's going to help mm. their running, it doesn't need to be that way if you think of food as fuel and um trying to get as much of the good stuff in as possible it's um yeah yeah great message yep yep <laughs> good one um and then do you live by any piece of advice or or motto i um i was checking out your blog the other day and I like the one you, you said be like a postage stamp stick to something until you reach your destination um <laughs> I love that one um yeah do you have yeah any particular one that you know just keeps i don't know keeps coming back to you or you kind of go through when you're at these races yeah i mean to me i really focus on trying to enjoy the process of working towards my goal i i was pretty confronted when i went to my first olympics in london at just how shattered some of the athletes were who didn't achieve their goals and it was a real wake-up call to enjoy the successes along the way and the, the process of, of getting there because you know I heard people talking about regrets that they hadn't done this and that and and whatnot and then it wasn't even like they they didn't achieve what they were hoping to and I just think yeah you really need to make sure that say the Olympics is your goal that four years between that that makes up the bulk of your you know your life those parts in between doesn't it so I think really um taking satisfaction from from the little wins and that the ticks you can you know make each day and with that postage stamp quote I think there if if you really do want something and you just sort of keep working towards that and you find different creative ways to sort of keep moving forwards towards that goal I think you're going to um whether you get there or not, you know, find a lot of satisfaction in that journey. So, um, yeah, I'm a big one for, for goal setting. But then once you've set that goal, really, you know, mapping out the little steps that you need to take each day. Yep, yep. Um, and final question, um, what's one thing you can't live without when you're travelling to events around the world, apart from um, Billy and, D and Dylan? <laughs> uh, is there any piece of item that you just like I don't know you always take with you I'm trying to think I mean I've got my headphones and whatnot but I wouldn't say I 
go crazy without them. Um, I mean, I'm not good with snoring, so earplugs are pretty important. If I, myself, you know, in a room, you know, sharing with someone who snores, I'd, I'd really find that challenging if I didn't have some earplugs. But, again, I don't think that's all that necessary. I think just, um, yeah, probably having my sneakers really is the big one. Yeah, yeah. If I wasn't running, I just... I like to be able to walk and explore and yep. yeah. Yeah. So we had um Evan Evan Dunphy, he was he needed to take a pillow, didn't he, Alan? A, a particular yep. pillow that he would just always stuff in, didn't matter how full his suitcase was, he had to take this pillow with him. Um, <laughs> we had Emma Jeffcott and she has actually started myself and my flatmate here on Biscoff. It's like oh, yeah. a um a spread, it's so good. Um, it's like crushed sweet biscuits turned into like a peanut butter oh. kind of spread. Okay. It's, yeah, it's, nice. I'd yeah. have to look for that. Yeah, it's a good one. Yeah, so, it, yeah, it's interesting anyway um, to, yeah. yeah, see what everyone's little thing is. Yeah. Holly no, J was compression like socks. <laughs> I do like my different for the like almond butters and whatnot. I was going to say that, but I was like, I, I would be able to survive without it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. No, it's a good question. <laughs> um, yeah, that's cool. Thanks, Jess. Um, that's all of our yeah, all of our questions. Um, yeah, thank you. Thanks for yeah. Awesome. Um, so good to to hear from Jess and learn from Jess and her experiences with um, both. You know, managing with. Um, I guess seeing what she's done in terms of, of, of sweat loss and even though she hasn't done what sounds like a whole heap in that area, it sounds like she may be looking into that and um, and as as we know, we, you know, continue to refine and, and learn and, and focus on different aspects as we're going and whether it's relevant for each person. Um, but, yeah, also just really good to hear about how she managed with the heat because she's um, faced quite a, a number of conditions in the in the heat, um, and and has put on some really good performances. So, really interesting to learn from from her. Um, yeah, Alan, did you want to sum up anything extra there from from Jess? And I guess yeah, what we've learned in terms of sweat and and heat management. Yeah, I mean, I think we can take some of those things that that Jess talked about, and you can kind of relate them back to the you know the previous podcast with Ollie as well. Like it's clear that mm-hmm. she's done some sort of heat acclimation work, you know, leading into some of those those big races, um, which you know fits in perfectly with, with what Ollie talked about in in episode five uh, A. Um, the other thing that that really struck me though is um, she did a whole lot of heat training that wasn't necessarily that close to the event. It sounds like it was quite a ways beforehand. Um, and so that's not going to have a sort of an acclimation benefit. It's like, you know, you stop that training and you know, as Ollie explained, the, the acclimation wears off fairly quickly. But I think what it's what it's doing in, in her case is sort of preparing her mentally or psychologically for racing in those conditions. You, you have 
that sort of experience of what it's going to feel like um, repeatedly. Uh, and you know, she talked about that heat chamber being set to the the expected conditions on the Gold Coast specifically. So that wasn't really for a heat acclimation per se. It was more to get used to what it feels like to run in that environment. You know, getting used to what it um, you know what your pacing strategy needs to be in that kind of environment because it's going to be different to you know running I don't know the New York Marathon or London or something where it's going to be much cooler. Um, so there's that whole aspect to it of you know preparing for what it's going to feel like as well as the actual physiological preparation for the event um and then you know she talked a lot about not only the heat acclimation but then that sort of perception of heat versus the reality of body temperature and you know there's all these strategies around cooling and, and menthol and things like these but um, sometimes that can can do you a little bit of a disservice in that you feel cooler than you actually are and, and in some situations that's good from a performance point of view you can put out a better performance because you sort of trick your brain a little bit in that sense um, but the, the risk particularly for longer events where you know you you have that perception you go out harder uh, is that that reality comes back to bite you because um, you know body temperature is body temperature no matter what you feel like it is there's there's a reality to that and so you know I think she described that really well in that um, Gold Coast Commonwealth Games where she went out you know feeling pretty good feeling that it wasn't particularly hot and then she got to the last three kilometers and and all of a sudden you know the heat almost overwhelmed her uh, and you you described in the intro that you know what happened to her when she crossed the finish line um, yeah, it's, I think a really good example of that. So yes, we can use these sort of cooling strategies, and there's a there is a time and a place for them, and then they can improve performance if used, you know, well and effectively. But I think that really needs to be done in a situation where you've you know, you've tried it beforehand and had that preparation, and probably in a lot of those situations under some you know pretty close supervision by a coach or a physiologist or someone who can uh, you know monitor those sorts of things rather than something you just pull out on you know pull out a few fishermen's friends on race day that's probably not going to end well necessarily mm, yeah 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 definitely um yeah so um hopefully listeners have listened to to ollie's podcast um first to give some background and then um crack into jess's podcast um so we we would love for, for listeners to um, shoot over to our social media and um, either give us a rating or um, just um, any questions that you've got that you want us to cover. Um, we would love to hear more about those. Um, and yeah, any feedback that, that you'd want us to add in or, or take out of the podcast, we're, we're very happy to hear um, feedback in that area too. Um, so, following on from this one, what's the next topic that we're going to cover? Yeah, so the next topic I think is a, a really interesting one. Um, you know, we talk about, you know, we have our rant and, and, you know, those sort of myths and misconceptions that are around nutrition uh, and, and sports nutrition, obviously. Um, so this podcast really gets to the heart of that and asks the question, why is nutrition so confusing? You know, there's so much out there, um, so many differing opinions, uh, myths, and, and all that sort of stuff. So um, we've got a, a guest expert to unpack that with us. 
Dr. Tim Crow, uh, and Tim's had sort of a, a long career as a, a scientist and an academic in the, the field of nutrition and dietetics, uh, more in that sort of the general nutrition and health and chronic disease angle more so than the sports nutrition angle, um, but had really you know a lot of exposure to to this sort of issue, and and more recently in the last few years he's moved into the sort of um, freelancing media space, so he's doing a lot of work communicating with the public now rather than the academic side of things. So he's had both of those experiences, um, has his own blog and, and podcast, Thinking Nutrition, um, very popular as well. Again, more around the nutrition for health more broadly, um, but he does get a little bit into sports nutrition there, and um, the main reason for that is he's also a runner himself. So he's um, run, you know, multiple marathons i think he's you know close to 20 marathons he's run himself so mm -hmm. he has that personal experience as a runner and then as an academic in terms of doing scientific research in nutrition and now really um you know his his career has moved into how to best communicate those sorts of things to the public and and how you interact with the public so i think he's got sort of all three bases covered in terms of being able to answer this question really well as an expert yeah yep yeah, looking forward to listening to, to Tim um, and, yeah, um, learning how we can perhaps nut out and maybe make nutrition a little bit less confusing. So some tips from him would be, will be fantastic. So for now, that's all from, from Alan and I. Yeah, so, uh, looking really forward to, to bringing you the next episode with Tim.